If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's bow for for prayer. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word and for the opportunity we have to read your word, to revisit the truths that we know but need to be reminded of, to learn anew or to learn afresh those things that you would have us to understand. That, Father, again, we may continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, knowing, Lord, again, that that will bring glory and honor to you and that we will then be the instruments in your hands to be used by you in the lives of others. And so, Father, we thank you for the great privilege that we have. And again, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul has been talking to the believers in Ephesus and has reminded them that they are not to be living the way they used to be living when they were pagans. He's even indicated by the way that he uses the language that they have been doing that. And so he wants them and he wants to encourage them to not live that way. And so he says in verse 20 of Ephesians 4, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. When he begins verse 20 by saying, which you have not learned, he is again making a very emphatic contrast with what they were before, or with the unregenerate pagan, or the unregenerate Gentile. The implication, again, that he mentioned in verse 17 was that they should no longer walk this way. They should no longer live that way. Uh, And again, that's because some of the readers uh, had kind of drifted back into their old ways of living life. So Paul is trying to correct their defective thinking. That's where it begins. It always begins in the mind. Even though a person may not be aware of it, everything that we do always passes through the mind first. It may seem instantaneous, but when this changes then everything else will begin to change. This was always, uh, we never bypass the mind uh, in Christianity. In fact, I think we emphasize it. And we do have to be careful we don't overemphasize it where we begin to diminish other aspects of who we are as people. But we never want to diminish or undermine the importance of the mind and our thinking uh, as individuals, as, as Christians. So Paul is trying to correct their defective thinking Uh, And then along with that, their potentially very destructive behavior. And so he begins by reminding them of how they have been delivered from really the ethical sewer in which they once wallowed. Uh, That's really what he's getting at. So again, the ways of God, and we know this as believers, and the ways of the world are not really compatible. They are two very different ways of living life, or the approach to life is very different. Uh, There is this idea that has been promoted by some within Christianity. And it's uh, had, um, a, there's been a couple of movements that kind of emphasize this. And, and the main idea is that a Christian does not have to give up anything or change anything when he becomes a Christian. And that is, I think MacArthur said this, that that's diabolical when it comes to that. Now, it's true that you do not have to give anything up or change anything to become a Christian. But as a Christian, to say that we don't have to give anything up or change anything would be wrong. It's about becoming a new person in Christ. It is about 
being what you were not before. It is about giving up those old ways. So there is always inherent in the idea of Christianity, uh, the idea of transformation. It's not just that, well, now I'm going to heaven. It is that I am now a child of God. That should look different. We then should be different. And that's why there is that emphasis in the scripture. Now, those who emphasize this idea that there is no change that's warranted uh, tend to be, there's different names of it, but they, what they claim they're doing is they want to emphasize the grace of God and they want to stay away from legalism. Well, we want to stay away from legalism too, but legalism has nothing to do with an individual becoming who God wants them to be. Legalism is primarily the idea that you somehow either earn favor with God by what you do or you stay in favor with God by what you do. And then along with that, there tends to be the adding of things that aren't necessarily biblical, uh, cultural type things. Uh, um, You know, the Bible in general states that it's not good for a man to have long hair. Never really gets into what that is. There's no measurements given. Uh, And so it used to be very common uh, in some fundamental churches that to state that a Christian male should never allow his hair to touch his ears. And that to do so would be sinful. Now, that's not in the Bible, but that's, you know, that's what they said. Um, and uh, there, were, there were, have been reports of churches. In fact, I know a guy personally who went and visited a more of a conservative, very fundamental church. This would be back in the 80s. Uh, he visited and he was asked that if he was going to come back to do so after he cut his hair. Now, his, his hair was presentable. Uh, he was, he's Chinese. His hair was straight, uh, black, as, as a lot of Chinese the hair is. And so it did touch his ears just a little bit. It wasn't, I mean, he didn't look like a hippie. Uh, it was, he was very, he was be considered clean cut. But that was, I mean, he was, they didn't even know him. So I'm, I, I have all these thoughts that immediately come to my mind. So wait a minute. So they didn't even know the guy. What if this guy wasn't a Christian? Is that what we're going to say? I don't care how long your hair is. If you don't know, the, if you don't know Christ, you are welcome here. I want you to hear. Uh, and people have done that type of thing, whether it's based on dress, uh, whether it's based on tattoos, uh, piercing, length of hair, all kinds of things. We just got to push all that stuff to the side. And we need to welcome people in. And let's assume the best. So if they're not a believer, we want to welcome them in because we want to love them. We want them to hear the, the gospel. Maybe they're a new believer. They don't know any better. Welcome them in. And, what, and then, besides, so what if they have long hair? What does that really have to do with us anyway? Let, let God take care of that. You know, if God convicts them to cut their hair, then they'll cut their hair. If not, it's just not a thing. So anyway, uh, so, but that's what happens. So there's this movement then where it almost, and it has in some circles, uh, where individuals end up then taking this focus on the grace of God that we don't have to change to where it's almost as if they're espousing you can remain in known sin. And that's where they are. And they uh, would defend that. I don't know what you do with that. I, 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 would rec- I, I would suggest slapping them maybe, but I don't think that would be helpful. So, but the idea is that that's out there. And so we have to be, again, very careful with this and make sure we, that when we're talking with individuals that we recognize the differences in these things. So the notion... That again, a Christian does not have to give up anything or change anything is taught, uh, again, under the pretense of elevating God's grace 
and protecting the gospel from what you hear some people call or use this phrase, works righteousness. And the idea there is that uh, we are saved by God's grace and our works. And so they're trying to stay away from that. And, and so that's, that's what their excuse is. Uh, but again, uh, I think it will send a lot of people down the wrong road. So Paul says that believers have been made new in the attitude of their minds, that they are no longer futile, or they're no longer to be futile or empty in their thinking, uh, that they are uh, different, no, their, their understanding is no longer darkened, they are not to remain in ignorance. Believers are new people in Christ, and so because of that, they, they cannot any longer live as pagans. So that's why we always expect there to be changes. That doesn't mean there's an instantaneous change in everything. And we can sometimes get in trouble because a person may become a believer and they weren't necessarily living overtly like a pagan, but we all think like pagans. And again, that has to change. And so there's always going to be change in us, whether it's behavior, attitudes, uh, thinking, opinions, um, all those things, or all of the above. All of that is expected by God for us to change, to be like Christ, really is the general goal for that. So Paul's argument is, you no longer belong to the old corruption of sin, you belong to the new creation in Christ, so that's why he uses really the analogy of grave clothes. You need to change the grave clothes, get out of the grave clothes, uh, because you are a new person in Christ. And so the question should be, how do we do this? Well, he's going to get to this, and we'll, we'll spend some time on it, uh, through this week and in and, uh, and a couple of weeks. But basically, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. That's in verse 23. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. So uh, conversion is a crisis that leads to a process. The idea behind that phrase, it's not original with me. I copied that from another pastor. I think it was Warren Wearsby, but I'm not sure. But the idea is, is that when we come to Christ, normally is... There is a crisis. We come to understand that we're separated from God. We come to understand that uh, we are in sin, we have sinned, and we need forgiveness, and we can't work our way out of it. So there's this crisis. It doesn't always mean that there's a big emotional thing, though there may be emotions in it, but there's a crisis. So we are then converted from our old way of thinking, old way of believing, to a new way, believing in Christ, depending upon Christ, and when that happens, we then begin a new life, and it is now a process. The process is of being transformed into the image of Christ. That will look a little different with all of us because of where we begin, but at the same time, it will, in a sense, look the same uh, as far as that goes. So uh, it's a crisis that leads to a process. So through Christ, once and for all, we have been given a new position in his new creation, but day by day, we must appropriate by faith what he's given us so the word of god renews the mind as we surrender or submit our all to christ again jesus prayed in john 17 sanctify them praying for believers sanctify them through your truth your word is truth so that so the sanctifying process and that's again where that argument is for some individuals some individuals would begin to argue that nope sanctification is a completed deal well it's it's two it's both things I am sanctified completely in Christ by my position. But in my practical living, I am not yet completely sanctified because I sin. And so here he tells us in his prayer that the way that God is going to sanctify us is through the word of God. That's why we always emphasize scripture. It's not because scripture is magic. It's not because it's, it's some kind of a thing. If you do it, you earn points with God and he will answer so many prayers. The idea is, is that the word of God is what the spirit of God who resides in us uses 
to change this. It changes what we think about, but also, if you, if you do remember, I've mentioned it several times, but remember, I, I believe in Romans 1, when it talks about, beginning of verse 18, talks about how basically every man is without excuse, and talks about the corruption of sin, that not only what we think about is sinful, but even the way we think is sinful. The way we process information may be our starting point, even for those who are smart and may be very logical. Their starting point is flawed. So the way we think about things is corrupted. So then the Word of God corrects not only what we think about, but it also corrects the way we think. We then, if, I guess an easy way, to, for me anyway, to think about that is that I now begin to think rationally in an honest way, not in a dishonest way. The, the dishonest way is, is uh, for example, if, 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 I don't know if you've ever seen these uh, debates that people are having quite a bit on the news now for the past several years, but it's much more heated now. People will talk about or try to answer the question, what is Islam? And man, would that get a firestorm going. And if you watch and you listen carefully, uh, you, you will oftentimes hear individuals get very angry when, if you talk about an Islamic jihadist. And what they're saying is, well, you cannot paint all Muslims with that brush. So often the individual who's talking about an Islamic jihadist will say, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not saying if you're a Muslim, this is what you are. What I am saying, this ideology is out there. It is believed by maybe a higher percentage of Muslims than you might want to admit. And along with that, there's another segment of of Islam that they won't ever act on that, but they believe it. And then people, then this person, yeah, but you just, you're, you're putting them on the same boat. It's like, are they listening? They're trying to, we're trying to, you know, we have to, you know, we're designating and we're trying to differentiate between people. There are differences, but there are certain things that you cannot deny. Uh, and so that can become extremely frustrating. So uh, at times, and maybe it's often, what I think when I hear some individuals in those types of, of discussions is that there are some who are being intellectually dishonest. They're not, they're not really, they're almost trying to ignore maybe certain facts to try to make their point. And, and both sides can do that. Uh, it's not only one side, it's just I happen to be on one side of that argument, and so I, I'm, I can spot the other one much more easily. But we have to be careful of that, and so I believe the Word of God is to change that in us, uh, in the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about God, the way we think about other people. That is challenged by the word of God and changed. So as our minds understand the truth of God's word, it is gradually transformed by the spirit of God, and this renewal leads to a changed life. There are times that our mind understands the truth and is, and is gradually transformed slowly. Sometimes it's transformed quickly. Uh, but nonetheless, there's, gonna be, there's a change that's taking place. Uh, and that's why we'll see individuals sometimes grow as Christians who may not even be exposed to good teaching, but if they're reading the Word of God, just reading it, even with what little they know, it's not uncommon to begin to see changes in, in their thinking, and changes in their approach to things, changes in their attitudes. That's because that's what the Word of God does. That's why the Bible speaks of the Word of God as being alive and active. Right? It's, we're not just reading like an encyclopedia. It, it, there's, it's the breath of God. He breathed the truth out. Then the Spirit of God interacting with uh, the Word of God brings about these changes uh, in our lives. And that's what Paul is talking about. So again, physically, we are what we eat. 
Spiritually, we are what we think. Proverbs 23 says, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. And that's speaking of a very specific issue there. But the truth of that verse, or part of that verse, verse 7, is still true. As we think within ourselves, that's what we are like. Uh, And, of course, remember uh, Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said uh, to those who are listening, you may think that you are very good because you have not committed adultery, but I say, if you look at a woman with lust, he doesn't say you're like an adulterer, he says you are one. So what he's saying is, uh, basically, whatever you're thinking within yourself, you are. And th- that was a new dynamic that a lot of individuals really hadn't thought of and didn't really want to think about, uh, but that's how God understands us, and what God thinks about us is always going to be correct and accurate. So it's, it is, that's why it's important for us as Christians to spend time daily meditating on the Word, Whether you are thinking about one verse or a large passage, meditating on the Word of God, remember that that meditation as it's used in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament has the idea really of mulling something over and over again. You're just thinking about it. Uh, And that's kind of the idea, you've heard me use the illustration before about a cow and all of its different stomachs and animals that chew the cud. That when you hear that phrase, that means that they literally kind of vomit up the food they have swallowed, and they chew on it some more, and they swallow it again. It's a very gross thing to think about. Uh, But the idea with the Word of God is that. So we don't just read the Word of God. I've done my duty and go my merry way. In the beginning, we may do that because we haven't yet disciplined ourselves to think about Scripture. But what we need to do as believers is as we begin to read the Word of God, and 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 I'm not getting into how many verses you read a day, you know, all that changes. But the idea is, is that when we read the Word of God, it's important for us to forcefully call it back to memory. What did I read this morning? Ask yourself that. What did I read this morning? Or what did I read last night? Or, okay, what was, what was the passage that Bob was speaking on Sunday morning? Or what was the passage that we were covering in Sunday school? You want to think about it, try to recall it, and then think about that passage or what was said. Mold it over in your mind. And that's the idea of meditation. And that's what God wants us to do. So it's important for us to develop that. Meditate on the word. Uh, important for us to pray. And then, of course, uh, again, what we've been talking, or at least what I've been mentioning a great deal over the past six months, is this idea of fellowshipping. What, what is real Christian fellowshipping? And it always has the idea that we are engaging in discussions, that we are engaging in a f- improving friendship with each other. And there's always a spiritual component to it meaning that that's always a part of what we talk about. It becomes a natural thing. We, we move from discussing the weather, the Super Bowl, to what we're reading in Scripture, and it's back and forth. It's a very fluid thing, but it's, but it's definitely, it must include that aspect. Uh, and that is how we uh, encourage each other, strengthen each other, all those things. It's a very important thing. And it, it doesn't mean you have to get and have a, we have to pull out 16 commentaries and, you know, study for an hour, even though that can be fun sometimes. Uh, but the idea is that we definitely do that. My wife did this once with a group of ladies. I forget how that happened. But I thought it was a pretty, pretty cool idea. And maybe we should do this every now and then. It's just a very simple thing. And that is where you just call together some friends. And this is all you're going to do. You're going to get together, maybe for some coffee. Uh, but you sit in someone's living room. And you open your Bibles. And you open Romans. And everybody takes a turn. And reads a certain number of verses until the entire book of Romans is done. Maybe take you an hour, whatever. Just read the scripture out loud together. 
And then you drink your coffee. And maybe talk about what you read. It's a cool thing. But you don't want to do it just because it's cool. Right? That's the idea is that it's encouraging. It's very encouraging. I can't emphasize how, how, much, uh, how important it is, not only for people, for children especially, but for people as well, for adults. But I've talked to many, many uh, men in jail through my years as a chaplain. And I've talked to them and asked, as we've talked about this, I've asked this question of them, especially the ones who have stated that they were kind of raised in the church or they kind of went to church at least fairly frequently growing up. And so I've asked them, do you remember people in the church, primarily men, do you remember seeing men or hearing men pray or read the scripture? Almost always the answer is, No, they remember women praying. They remember women reading the Bible. They, they know the pastor. In fact, I had one guy say this. Well, I know the pastor must have read the Bible because he was preaching, but I'm not really sure. Uh, <laughs> but the idea was that for many of them, whether it was in their family, church, etc., it was a rare thing for them just to remember that uh, seeing men do that. And I say that because... That has an impact on young people growing up. The unintended, maybe, uh, message is religions for women. That reading the Bible and praying is for women. That when you become a man, you don't need it. Or when you become a man, it's not important. So, it's important for us to do those things, for our children to see us. So your children may not actually participate in sitting in the living room and reading the Bible. But you may be surprised at what the kind of dynamic effect it could have on them when they just think back, years ago or what have you, that, yeah, I remember there was a few times when people would come over to the house or we would go to someone else's house and we would also we would read the Bible out loud together. There's no teacher, no planned lesson, and then they would have some coffee and talk about it and then go home. This there's people now, as I know you've heard this before, there's people now across the world who are in places where they would, they would be killed for doing that. And they do it anyway. I mean, they, they'll, they'll sneak in the woods, huddle in an attic, or go into a basement with one light bulb, whatever it is, to do that uh, because it's so important. And so it's just, these are good things for us to think about, uh, different ways that we can encourage each other. It doesn't require a great deal of brain power in the sense that we have to spend hours preparing things. We can just do things together uh, that encourages us. And you may never know how much that might encourage somebody who may be struggling with reading the Bible regular, and then by just getting together in a group like that, they realize, you know, it's not that hard of a thing. And this is, some of the things that were read may, may stick. So just something to think about. So again, that is why Paul, after, when he gets into all this, says, he says, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Uh, one idea I, did, I don't have in, in my notes. I'm going to just throw this out real quick. But when he says put off concerning your former conduct, basically stop doing the things you used to do, when he mentions the old man, which is basically your former manner of life, he says which grows corrupt. So I think part of the way that it's phrased there in that verse is that the old manner of living, if we live that way, it continues, or we continue, to grow more corrupt. We don't stand still. We're, we're 
as a believer, if I'm not living the way that I should be living, not striving to live that way, and I'm beginning to live or and live my life, react to people in situations the way I used to, remember what, what drives the old man? What, what drives the unbeliever? His desires. That's what's paramount. Whatever form they take, that's what drives him. Well, that has, as well as being corrupt, has a corrupting effect on us. Sin, sin, sin changes us. Remember, we've talked before about how sin can change us. It, it can be very subtle. It's not always that you become a hideous being within three weeks. Uh, but sometimes we can tell, whether it's ourselves or others. You know, a person becomes, a believer becomes a little more irritable. What's going on? It's, it's not necessarily there needs to be any kind of big sin. You know, it's not like someone's running around committing adultery all of a sudden. But they're beginning to live and think this way, and next thing you know, stuff begins to happen. They begin to lie, and they're unaware, really, that they're lying. They don't really, it doesn't really bother them. They kind of go their way. Just a lot of things begin to happen. So we have to be, that's why when Paul says this, he's not just trying himself just to kind of control people's life and says, well, I want everyone to be moral because I'm the moral policeman. That's not what he's doing. He, he wants to spare us from the corrupting power of sin. We've been delivered from the power of sin. That's true. But if we live or begin to live like we used to, then what happens is, is we will then begin the process again of growing more corrupt uh, by uh, these deceitful lusts. So the lusts that we have are always deceitful. They're deceitful in the sense that it's not that I'm not thinking that they're bad. It's just that I'm not taking into account their power, the power that it has to change me as a person, and it, and it does. And so we must be very much aware of that. So Paul then identifies, as I've already said, the, the old man is in reference to your former manner of life. The old man refers to all that we were before we were saved, when we were ruled by evil desires and practices. So here in Ephesians, Paul does, uh, now Paul does at, at, at times, this, this passage, the wording of it in the Greek language is kind of odd in this sense. And some of the commentators will, will say this. They'll say that when Paul talks about putting off the old man, he's writing about it as if it's an accomplished fact. And there's some truth to that, but that can lead to some wrong conclusions. In other words, they say, well, when Christ died on the cross, we died with him positionally. And that's true. We talk about our identification with Christ. When he was raised from the dead, we were raised with him. The Bible tells us we are to reckon or to reason these facts to be true in our daily practice. So I reason in relation to these facts so that I won't yield to sin. So some then have kind of gone into this idea that because Paul is talking about the putting off of this old man as something that's already done, that then can lead to this idea that we don't need to continue to pursue sanctification and some of the other issues and difficulties that come along. They say, well, putting off the old man's a done deal. Uh, so I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to contend anymore uh, to live a life of holiness. Um, so even though it's true we die with Christ, in other places Paul commands us to put to death our members. And he's still telling us that we need to put off the old man. So the question should be, so why do we need to put to death our members as a believer? Why do I put off the old man if we, in our position, already died? All of this has been accomplished. Well, we need to apply daily or apply experientially the facts that are true of us in our position. Right? In the same way that, um, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but I remember one time I was uh, playing in a, obviously I was a lot younger then, but I was playing in a, in a basketball league. I was in my 20s, and there was this guy that I was talking to, and he played in 
three different basketball leagues. And um, I knew he went to another church. And when he said that, I just kind of stopped. I said, I thought you were married. He goes, I am. I said, dude, you're playing in three basketball leagues. Like, when are you home? Why is that a big deal? I go, yeah, it is. No, my wife said I could play. I don't think so. She may have said those words. That is not what she meant. <laughs> I said, you need to learn that. And so, but the idea there was that this guy spending all that time away from home, he was not acting according to his new position, husband. And so I said, dude, there's some stuff you need to learn now or you are going to be in big trouble and you're going to lose your wife and whatever else comes along, depending on how long this takes. So you need to, you need to drop a couple of these leagues. And it doesn't matter which one, but you need to drop them. You can play in one, but you need to drop the others because you need to act like a husband. Your, your wife needs to know and went through a bunch of stuff and all that. So same thing as a, as a believer. I know and we may learn what I am in Christ, but now I need to live that out. I need to live like a child of the king or a child of God, so to speak. So, yes, at the moment we got saved, we did put off dirty clothes of the old life. But also every day we must reckon or reason that this is so by putting off everything associated with the old life and putting on the new. And a lot of times that deals with our attitudes uh, that, because that's what kind of uh, affects how we respond to things, how we live. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a uh, great uh, uh, preacher uh, in England in the uh, uh, 1900s, 19, uh, late 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, he said this. He said, when Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, they were officially free from their many years of servitude, but some of them went on living as if they were still slaves. The president's proclamation gave them legal standing as free citizens. It was a done deal. They were no longer slaves, but out of habit and way of thinking, many still lived like slaves. So they needed to live in accordance with the new facts. When they were tempted to think like a slave, they needed to say, no, the truth is I am now a free man. They needed to appropriate that truth into their daily experience. Now we're not going to get the fact that there are a whole bunch of people who wanted to keep thinking that way. That obviously happened, but that idea is very true. It's the same thing happens to an individual who's spent a lot of time in prison. They talk about an individual becoming institutionalized. Uh, and the easiest way to put that is if, when a man spends time in prison, which if that's where he needs to be, then that's where he needs to be. There's not a pro- I don't have a problem with that. However, because everything is so regimented, the average uh, inmate, just generally speaking, he makes about 300 decisions a day. There's been these studies done, and we're talking about even to the minutest things that we don't even think about. 300 decisions a day. You and I, on average, make about 3,000 decisions a day. That's a huge difference. When you live for five years or more making 300 decisions a day, and then you're released, and suddenly you now have to make 3,000 decisions a day, that can be a shock. And that's why it's not unusual at times for, uh, I, I say men, because most of the people that are incarcerated are men, for a man when he gets out of prison, that there are times where they go home or where they go somewhere else, that, and if they have a job, they, when they come home, they go straight to their room and they shut that door. If they want to watch TV, they want a TV in their room. They want to shut that door they, because it is, so, it is emotionally overwhelming. And the longer that they're in prison... 
And I'm not, I'm not against long prison terms, but we do have to understand that the longer they're in prison, the more difficult that becomes. Uh, they, they recognize that, and there's now different things to try to help guys, but it was not uncommon in the past, like in the 50s and 60s, that if a man got out of prison and he did, let's say, over 20 years, especially if they were older, uh, they'd commit suicide. It'd be so overwhelming, they would commit suicide, or they would go and commit another crime. They, they didn't want to hurt anybody. They just they needed to be back to where they really felt safe. And so, I mean, they would do the obvious thing. They would take a, an empty gun and just walk into a bank. I'm here to rob the bank. They're not going to rob the bank. But that they say that, they get arrested, boom, back in prison, and they feel safe. So, uh, you know, they have to. Uh, so as believers, we need to learn to think that way. And today, in the society which we live in, which, has, which is more and more throwing off uh, a borrowed morality from the scripture and quickly moving away from that, people no longer really understand what it means to think biblically. They don't, they don't know the morals that we have, not to the degree that our society used to. So there's much more to learn. Uh, it's not that they're trying to be evil. They don't know. And so it's important for us as individuals, as well as as we're trying to help others, to help them understand. Let's study the Bible, learn what it says, learn how to think this way, and then appropriate this. If you read, um, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, or if you are going to in the fifth chronicle, which is the voyage of the Don Treader, Edmund and, and Lucy have a spoiled cousin. His name is Eustace. He's just a real brat. Um, and uh, so he's, uh, he comes along with them, and he's tempted in this one portion of the story by this, uh, by this enchanted treasure. And so in the, treasure, in the story, he turns into a dragon. And uh, once he realizes what has happened through the course of time, uh, he wants to no longer be a dragon, and he can't undo it, and he needs help. And so in this Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan represents, he's the image of Christ, and so he, he accepts the help of Aslan. And Aslan's made this clear to him that this is not a painless process. And the way that it's described is basically is Aslan has to use his claws to painfully tear off the dragon's flesh. And, and that is a picture at times of what it is for us as we change as believers. There are some aspects of our life, and maybe for some, some individuals who are Christians, where maybe just large portions of change just, there's no difficulty, there's no pain. But there are times when, when it can get real deep. And sometimes what is true is a person can be a believer for 20 or 30 years. And it's, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the process is or how they get to this point, but at, for whatever reason, they get to the point to where now there's something that is deep inside of them that has never been touched by the Scripture. Whether it's because they've avoided it themselves, they've just never thought of it, uh, maybe they have tactfully ignored it for a long time, but the Lord changes circumstances, and now there's going to be a very traumatic experience in their life, and now that's going to be touched. This area that, in a sense, Christ has not touched, and it can be very painful because often it begins initially with that person's pride being shattered. Because pride, we don't want to go there. I've changed a great deal. Or they may say this, I have reasons why I think this way. 
you don't understand. It could be maybe a marriage. Maybe the way one of the partners treats the other. Not that it's bad. It, it's not that they run around gossiping about them, but there's maybe there's something small. Maybe there's some kind of behavior. Maybe there's some kind of controlling mechanism that one uses with the other or a manipulative mechanism that they've, that they've depended on for a long time to make the marriage work. And now, for whatever reason, that's being uncovered and challenged. And now that person, all of a sudden, it's like it's hands off. And they don't want you going there. They're not going to go there. And all kinds of things can take place. And people can be stunned. Other people can be stunned when all of a sudden they begin to see behavior from this individual who is, in a sense, trying desperately to leave things uh, the way they were. It may be... uh, um, it could be that maybe an individual has maybe just a wee lid of racial prejudice in them. On the surface, they are loving and caring towards every imaginable race there is. And then all of a sudden, something changes. True story. A friend of mine, uh, he died recently. Uh, he, was, uh, he was in his 80s. He was a jail chaplain. He was a wild man in a good way, but he was a wild man. Anyway, he and his wife... Um, uh, had a, a son. This is a black couple. They had a son. This was in Virginia. And this was back in, uh, I believe, the 80s. Uh, they went to a church. The pastor and his family was white. That's important for the story. And uh, their son began to date the pastor's daughter. She got pregnant. All kinds of sin there, but you got the picture. So they... Uh, with great fear and trepidation, the young man and the young lady were going to tell the parents. She told her boyfriend, let me tell my parents alone first, and then you come over. And he said, okay. Because she said, I know my parents. This would be the best way for us to do this. So she told her parents. They were very, very angry, embarrassed, upset, all kinds of things. And then... Her dad, who'd pastored this church over 20 years, said, maybe we should think about a way for you to get an abortion. Where did that come from? It was more than just the fact that she was pregnant out of wedlock. It was because of who the father was. The boy was black. He had no problem with anyone of any racial color, but that, that was that hidden part deep inside that maybe even he was kind of unaware of, and that nerve was hit and exposed through this sin. She was stunned that her father, who had preached openly against abortion, as he should have, would even suggest that. She didn't know what to do. So she left the house weeping and told her, her boyfriend. And so then he, they went to go talk to his parents. And, of course, they were very upset in the whole deal. Uh, but, you know, they weren't even thinking that. And then when she kind of spilled it they, were, it, they were stunned. So my friend, his name is Scotty. <laughs> it's about 11 o'clock at night. Scotty didn't care. He drives over to the pastor's house, raps on the door until somebody finally answers. The dad answers. He knows, he knows why Scotty's there. And Scotty says, 
Shame on you. That's all I can say. Shame on you. You probably should resign. And then he left. <laughs> Which uh, I can't remember. I, I honestly cannot remember if the guy resigned or not. They ended up getting it worked, worked out. But what happened was, is those two young people, it, it became clear to everybody that really they should not marry. They were going to give the child up for adoption. And my, and my friend, Scott, and his wife, who were older, adopted the boy and raised him as their own. But what happened was, is see, sometimes sin will then reveal what's in the one who's supposedly righteous. All of a sudden, it touches that nerve. And, and it can be, like at that moment for that guy, I mean, it was embarrassing all those things. And so, as Christians, that's why we really should never be satisfied where we are. And when it comes to examining ourselves, why we want God to search our hearts deeply because we don't want those things to be exposed in that way. I want to be exposed sooner so I can deal with the ugliness of it, because that's ugly. I mean, basically, the pastor's solution was let's commit murder so I can save face. That's what he was saying. There's another way to look at that. And that's just wrong. And so we, we need to uh, look at ourselves in that manner. And so that's why then this illustration that we have here in the book written by C.S. Lewis, I think is really such uh, a very appealing and instrumental and helpful illustration because that's what it can be like. I can't say this is true for everybody, but I will say this. I think this is important. As a believer, as we grow as Christians, if we have never been through a, a, a moment in our lives that has been painful like that, there, there, there may be something that you're ignoring. I'm not saying dogmatically there is, because I'm not going to say that everybody has to go through all this pain. But it's a possibility, and you want to say, Lord, help me to be honest with myself. Please find a way to reveal to me if there, are, if there is this kind of ugliness deep inside of me, and ask him to show you. And, and I don't know if he's going to show you at that moment. I don't know if he's going to show you later. I, I do believe that God definitely answers those prayers because that, that request honors the Lord. It honors Christ. It brings glory to Christ. And so we need to make sure that, um, that we do that. And that can be very, very hard. So again, receiving God's gift of salvation through Christ is a one-time event. But to become like him requires at times... Suffering and struggle, it requires that. That suffering may not even be seen by anybody else. So I'm not trying to promote this idea that we all have to suffer openly. It may be more of the struggle on the inside, but nonetheless it's there and it's very real. Uh, so it may involve putting aside old sinful habits, whatever they may be, and replacing them with good ones. And so he says in verse 23, as we already said, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. So we need to ask ourselves a question. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What does that mean? How do we understand that? We know that God does the renewing as we obey him by saturating our minds with the transforming word of truth. That's, that's basic and it's clear. God's Spirit performs the work of renewal in us, but again, we are responsible to use the means that God has given us, which is the Bible, which again renews our hearts and thoughts as we submit to it. So what does the Spirit of your mind mean? Well, he could have said, be renewed in your mind. 
but he didn't say that. Now, some here try to interpret spirit as being the Holy Spirit, uh, but the phrase of your mind, it doesn't fit. It's not the Holy Spirit of your mind. That, that doesn't make, so that, it can't be that. Others say, well, it's the human spirit. Uh, but, and, and Paul does, uh, he doesn't use spirit in that way anywhere else in Ephesians. So you've got a problem with the context of the book. Some think the spirit means um, the spirit which is your mind. Uh, but I don't know why he would say it that way. That doesn't really seem to be coherent. Uh, others, it's the attitude or the disposition of your mind. Some people say, well, he's just speaking of, of your inner person. I think it's a little different than that. I think it refers to the principle that regulates our mind, the principle that controls the mind. Um, the spirit of the world is the principle that controls the world or makes it what it is. Thus, the spirit of the mind is not just mental ability, but is the power that controls and directs the abilities. I don't think that we can kind of succinctly state what it is, but it is something that is in us, a combination of attitudes and things that affect this. And so the spirit of our mind needs to be renewed. So the mind needs to be renewed, yes, but the spirit, what controls it, what drives it, which is really getting down to the heart of things, that needs to be affected by the word of God. So Paul means then that our entire way of thinking, what controls our thinking, needs renewal. And that very much, I think, brings in the emotions or the heart. That's what controls our thinking. That's what directs our thinking at times. Uh, maybe incorrectly, but that's what happens. So we need to think in line with God's thoughts as he's revealed them in the word. So again, as I've said before, true biblical change, it must not bypass the mind. Uh, sometimes uh, preachers will use emotional stories they will use music. <clears throat> they may use a dramatic setting. Then appeal to people to make a decision for Jesus. I am just against that. It's not a good idea. Um, it just leads to a lot of problems. Um, because when they do that, they have bypassed the mind. Uh, decisions that are made on emotions don't last. God reasons with us through the truths of his word. The doctrines of scripture make sense because they're God's truth. When the Spirit of God opens a person's mind to the truth revealed in the Word of God, the truth will result in a change in emotions and, a cha- and it will change their will. Any change that bypasses the Spirit of the mind is just not going to last. So when we get together next time, we're going to talk about, there's several, a few other things that we need to notice about this new man that Paul brings out that will help us in understanding how we are to facilitate and bring about this change, cultivate this change in our lives as Christians. So that's an ongoing thing. In the same way that we talked this morning about we need to live a life of repentance, along with that, and what repentance will bring about is this change. Those things come together. They, they work together to bring that about. Because we all, at least I think we would at least on a surface level, immediately state, yes, I'm not exactly like Christ. I'm not as much like Christ as I ought to be. So we're always in, in, the, in the state of changing because we want to become more like Jesus. And that is, that is to be our goal, and that is the dynamic that God is working in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your kindness to us and your grace. And we pray that, Father, you would help us to meditate often on your word, to think deeply about what it says, to think about our life, the way we think, the way we react to the world around us. Uh, Pray, Lord, you help us to evaluate our lives, to ask ourselves, is every aspect of our life truly, is it Christian? Uh, And then, Father, help us to understand what that means and what that looks like. And then, Uh, we would seek to embrace that, that we would desire that, Father, for ourselves. Again, Father, we we know that by pursuing these things, that again, we do bring honor to you. 
we, we will be able to magnify who you are and your greatness and your mercy will be seen in us as we pursue, as we pursue those things. But also, Father, that is also, in a sense, the, the secret or that is the key to our living life now where we will experience joy and we will have joy continuously, where we will have a sense of contentment with our lives regardless of what's going on, that there will be a, a sense of satisfaction and great meaning and purpose not, Father, because we have some fancy mission statement, but, Father, because we are being transformed to the image of Christ. So, Father, we pray you help us to dwell on these things often. We do thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.